Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Please take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33 and begin with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, that if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned. And the sword comes and takes any of them. That person shall be taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So you son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You 
have just heard the saddest sound you will never hear. The sound of silence. A silence that resounds from our lips and echoes through the halls of hell and back again, bringing with it the screams of those who suffer and torment for eternity because of our silence. When Ezekiel used the metaphor of the watchman, he was using an image that all the people would understand vividly. Their time, like our own, was a time of international turmoil, and nation was at the throat of nation. Any small nation was fair game for a larger nation that wanted to expand its territories, increase its borders. War was seldom officially declared because invading generals knew that the element of surprise often assured victory. They would sneak up to their enemies on tiptoes, stealthily, hoping to catch the enemy unexpecting and unprepared. Because of this, if a nation was to survive for long, it had to build a strong standing army to keep its enemies at bay. And it had to develop an elaborate system of alert so that it could be warned when the enemy approached. In order to meet this need, men were posted at the border of the land to watch and then to warn in the event of an attack. These human military alarms were called watchmen. They would sit in tall watchtowers and for hours on end they would scan the countryside looking for that distant cloud of dust that might be an approaching army. And when they spotted the enemy, they would climb to the top of the tower and they would take the shofar, the trumpet of ram's horn, and blow it with all of their might to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. And on the sound of the trumpet's blast, people would stop whatever they were doing, gather their little ones into their arms and scurry behind the massive city walls to slam shut the gates, summon the army to gather its weapons, man its post, and prepare to repel the coming attack. The role of the watchman was ordinarily an humble and insignificant role until the threat of death came. And then suddenly his single breath upon that trumpet meant more to the fate of his people than the size of her armies, the strength of her walls, or the edicts of her king. The fate of that people rested on that single breath and the warning that it sounded. And so it's very appropriate that God should use the image of the watchman to describe the responsibility of the Old Testament prophets. They were to sound the alarm to wake the sleeping nation of Israel and prepare them for the judgment of the Lord of hosts. 
But it's also very fitting that God should use this same imagery to describe our responsibility as gospel messengers. You see, we are to sound the alarm of an even greater danger to the unprepared, the return of a just and holy king. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, watch therefore, because you do not know what day your Lord is coming, but know this, if the owner of the house had known what time the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That is why you must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus said, watch therefore, Gregoreo. We could literally translate it, be watchmen. This is the very same verb that was used by the Septuagint, Josephus, to describe the role of a sentry or a watchman who was to watch for the approaching enemy and then sound the alarm as they approached. And Jesus told his disciples clearly the alarm that they were to sound. Matthew 10, 7, like John the Baptist and Jesus himself, they were to shout, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The holy judge is coming, and you must prepare yourselves by repentance and faith right now. And so the command to the Old Testament prophet and the command to the New Testament apostle applies very fitly to the modern-day believer. Like the watchmen of old, the fate of many people rests upon our obedience to the commission of sounding the warning. God has placed in our hands a gospel trumpet, and our single breath upon it might mean the difference between heaven and hell for many, many souls. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, I, I fulfilling my responsibility as a faithful watchman, are there people who are yet ignorant of the warning because we've fallen asleep at our post and we have failed to sound the alarm? Are there people around us who have never heard the gospel call to prepare themselves for judgment? Are we so busy polishing our trumpets and tuning our trumpets that we neglect a world that perishes, never hearing the trumpet's blast? To those of us who recognize our failure in our duty, God pronounces these sobering words of indictment in verse 8. He says, if you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If the watchman fell asleep at his post and he failed to sound the alert and the invading enemy slew, the people, he would be held accountable for his failure. You see, he would be guilty of negligent homicide, although he had not personally slain his people. He had been an unwitting accomplice in their doom. 
He shared responsibility for their slaughter because of his dereliction of duty. And the principle is that we are often characterized by a silence that is even more destructive and even more indicting. We, make no mistake, are not just silent observers of the doom of the unevangelized. We are silent accomplices. And the Scripture says that if we do not sound the warning that is the only hope for the unredeemed, we will be accomplices in the spiritual suicide of the wicked. We will be held accountable for their doom, and their blood will be required of our hands. It's not a thought that appeals to me. When I was in high school, I had a friend that I visited with during our afternoon break from classes just about every day. I sensed that my friend was lost, and I would fumble around in the conversation trying to find the right entry point to share the gospel with him. But then the bell would ring, and I would look back and see that we had discussed everything but the one thing that really mattered. Because I always thought there would be another opportunity. It's been almost 35 years ago, but I still vividly remember the moment when the tragic news was shared that my friend had been working underneath the old pickup truck that he loved so much. He had it jacked up into the air while he worked under it. The jack slipped, the truck fell and crushed him, and he was killed instantly. As soon as the news spread, my friend started sharing fond reminiscences of time together with our friend, jokes and funny stories. I couldn't participate because in my mind, I was going through conversation after conversation looking for one time when I had shared the gospel with him. And there was not a single one. It was my first encounter with death, and I was devastated by it. As soon as I got alone, I fell on my knees, and I sobbed for hours. Finally, late in the night, I went to bed, hoping that maybe I could fall asleep and in my sleep get some hours of relief from the memories that were tormenting me. But when sleep finally came, I wished to God that it hadn't. Because in my nightmares, I saw the face of my friend crying out to me from hell, asking me again and again, Why didn't you tell me? And there was no excuse. I wish I could say that at that moment I learned my lesson, and from that moment on I became the most passionate, fervent evangelist you would ever meet anywhere. But the fact is, most of us don't learn those lessons quite so quickly. 
I had a female friend in school that I had actually dated some and taken her to some church events. It was an awkward relationship because I wanted to be friends and she wanted to be something more than that. But because of the way she felt about me, I could have said anything to her I wanted to say. I could have shared the gospel with her for hours and she would have hung on my every word I remember like yesterday getting that telephone call from her father saying that she'd been killed in a car accident the night before and he ended the conversation with the statement, you know, Chuck, she really, really respected you and I believe she would want you to be a pallbearer in her funeral. When I carried the casket, of that friend I was so choked with grief I could barely breathe she was a slender little thing her casket was probably light to everybody else but I nearly collapsed underneath the load because I was bearing a burden greater greater than I had ever carried before and a burden that I do carry to this very day. And I don't believe that I'm the only one in this room who is guilty of such failures. God has urged you to share the gospel with family members, with friends, with co-workers, with neighbors. He has given us the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. And we have refused. And for all we know, our witness may have been their one and only opportunity to hear the gospel repent and believe. For all we know, Their voices may one day join the voice of my friend in hell, screaming out to you, why didn't you tell me? The fact is, we have all been faithless watchmen. We stand before a holy God and we hold up hands that drip with the blood of those that we have slain by our silence. Make no mistake, it is not only to the unevangelized that we are accountable. It is to an almighty God that we will answer for our silence. Notice verse 8 again, if you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require of, of your hand. Not they, I. The Almighty is speaking. The point that is made here is that it is not merely the damned who will cry out one day, why didn't you tell me? It is the creator of the universe who will thunder, why didn't you tell them? 
Some way, somehow, God will hold us accountable for the sin of our silence. That's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for necessity is imposed upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And if we do not preach the gospel, we will one day know the meaning of that expression, woe is me. Now, we don't like messages like the one that the prophet speaks to us, and so we immediately begin to raise a shield of theological objections to protect us from the conviction of the Spirit of God. And there are some people who will say, well, this Old Testament passage is about the responsibility of the Old Testament prophet and his message of repentance is not appropriate to apply it to the New Testament believer. Oh, I wish Paul had been so theologically astute to recognize that. Numerous commentators have argued, I think persuasively, that Paul applied these principles to his own ministry in texts like Acts 18, 6 where he preaches the gospel to the resistant Jews at Corinth, and he says, after preaching the gospel, your blood is on your own heads. He also appeals to this text in Acts 20, 26, when he preaches to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he says, I am innocent of the blood of all people, for I have not failed to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. I don't think it could be more obvious. If the Apostle Paul is innocent of the blood of people because he proclaims the gospel, we become guilty of the blood of people if we fail to proclaim that same gospel. Others may argue that it is unjust for God to punish the unevangelized for the sin of our silence, but that's not what Ezekiel says. In fact, he explicitly denies this is how things work. He says in verse 6, that person is taken away in his own iniquity. Verse 8, that person shall die in his own iniquity, but his blood will I require of the watchman's hand. They will be punished for their own sins, not for ours. But make no mistake, it is our sin of silence that seals their doom. And others may argue, though I certainly hope not, that God has ordained that his elect will be saved, thus they will necessarily hear the gospel, and so our failure to share the gospel could not possibly hinder the salvation of anyone. Now, you should know that I wholeheartedly affirm God's eternal, gracious election of his people. When I subscribed to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and the abstract of principles, I didn't blink and I didn't cross my fingers behind my back. I believe every word of those documents. But even the most superficial reading of Holy Scripture and of our historic Baptist confession should be enough to show that election and evangelism are friends, not foes. They are fully compatible with one another because God has ordained one and only one means for the salvation of transgressors, and that is belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has appointed us to share that essential gospel message. 
Many years ago, a well-known theologian wrote at length defending how election and evangelism, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are fully compatible with these words. He said, we have already seen how plainly and audibly Paul preaches the doctrine of free election. Is he therefore cold in admonishing and exhorting that his people to repent and believe? Oh, no. Let those good zealots compare his passion with theirs, and they will find that they are like ice, while he is all fervor. In one word, those who have any tolerable acquaintance with the writings of Paul will understand without a lengthy demonstration how well the apostle reconciles the two things which men pretend to be contradictory. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, election, and evangelism. Then he concludes, let preaching have its free course, that it may lead men to faith. Who, you ask, was this theologian? John Calvin. His Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 23, Article 13. And it was this conviction about the compatibility of election and evangelism that prompted him to train missionaries to be sent throughout all of Europe and to countries even as far away as Brazil. The canons of the Synod of Dort, famous for their reduction of Calvin's system to five headings, stresses the necessity of evangelism and missions in heading to Article 5. It says, Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise, John 3, 16, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. And listen to Calvin's comments on the Ezekiel imagery that we examine today. He says, God here says that he had called his servant under this condition that he must render an account if any perished through his fault. Nothing is more precious to God than souls which he has created after his own image and of which he is both the Redeemer and Father. He adds that God has committed souls to our care, that we must render an account for each of them. And then he says that Paul's expression, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, is based on this very principle. Then he says, God will impose penalties on any who do not, quote, diligently endeavor to recall all wanderers into the way of salvation, unquote. He goes on to say that those who neglect their responsibility to proclaim the gospel are guilty of perfidy, that is, faithlessness, treachery, dereliction of duty, and that if they neglect to proclaim this gospel, he says, quote, they knowingly and willingly permit souls to perish through their own silence, unquote. Now, please understand, I don't quote Calvin at length because he bears any special authority with me. I'm simply making the point 
that if we hold to a brand of Calvinism that extinguishes or diminishes our passion for evangelism and missions, we have jettisoned the teachings of the reformer and we have wrecked the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. Someone might argue, well, it sounds to me from your appropriation of this text that you were trying to use guilt to motivate people to be faithful in evangelism. Don't you know that guilt is a poor and unbiblical motivation? To claim that is to miss the point of our text entirely. The point is not to stir our guilt. The point is to stir our compassion and open our eyes to the importance of our duty to the God who commissioned us. Why does God demand our faithfulness in warning sinners of coming destruction and in calling them to salvation? Look at verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The point is that God loves the lost. And because of his love for the lost, he desires their salvation, and he commands us to deliver the message, which is their only hope for salvation. Now, I believe that there are a number of different motivations in Scripture for evangelism and missions, but I do believe that love for the lost is an essential one. That's why Article 11 of the Baptist Faith and Message says... It is the duty and privilege of every follower of Christ and of every church of the Lord Jesus Christ to endeavor to make disciples of all nations. And then it adds, the new birth of man's spirit by God's Holy Spirit means the birth of love for others. Missionary effort on the part of all thus rests upon a spiritual necessity of the regenerate life. The theological argument is that when we are given spiritual birth, the character of the Heavenly Father is imparted to us, and because He is a loving God, we become loving people. We begin to love others, yes, even the lost, as God loves them. But if we have so much as an ounce of the Father's love in our hearts, we could not possibly hide and hoard the gospel. Which is why missions and evangelism is born of the first fruit of the Spirit, love and why it is, as the confession says, a spiritual necessity of the regenerate life. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And nothing could be more unloving than silencing the gospel that is the only hope for salvation to those who have transgressed God's law. I've shared with some of my faculty colleagues about my trip to Kenya, Africa nearly 30 years ago that was so life-changing. I've never seen such spiritual hunger. You walk into their villages, 
and they would say, please preach to us the Word of God. You'd put a Bible in their hands. They would grab it, clutch it to their breast, and then cover it with tears, tears and with kisses. And my interpreter and I had just been in one village and had preached the gospel, and dozens of people had been saved, confessing faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King. We were ecstatic as we walked out of the village sometime later. And on the outskirts of the village, there was this little Kenyan woman sitting on an old blown-out tire as her chair, <clears throat> cutting up cassava for supper for her family. And she stopped us and asked my interpreter something in Swahili. He answered with a grin, and then she replied, and he looked like he'd been slapped. And suddenly that broad smile was erased from his face, and he walked out of the village, shoulders stooped, downcast, like he'd just lost his best friend. We walked in silence for quite a while, and I had no idea what had just happened because the whole exchange had been in Swahili. But I finally asked him, Ayub, what did that lady say to you that's upset you like this? He said, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I said, no, it does. You've been hurt by it. You're my brother. I care about you. I'd like to help. What did she say? He said, she asked me how long you and I have been Christians, and I told her proudly for many, many years. And then she asked, if you have been Christians for so long, why, why did you never come and tell us this gospel before now? She was not ungrateful for the message she heard that day. But she couldn't help but ask, where were you with this gospel years ago when cholera swept through our village and wiped out most of our children? Where were you with this gospel when my father and my mother and my husband faced death? They never heard about the grace of Jesus Christ. You call yourself a Christian? You believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Then why have you never come and told us before? And in her question, I heard the distinct echo of a very familiar voice. Why didn't you tell me? But this time, that sole voice was joined by a chorus of hundreds, thousands, millions, yes, even billions, who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as cruel as it may sound, I pray that you will hear I pray that you will be haunted by those very screams until you are compelled to go and share the gospel at every opportunity. Until you are moved in love for the lost and in duty before God to share the good news to those to whom God has sent us. 
If you ever go into the office of Dr. Chuck Lawless, our vice president for graduate studies, you'll see on the back filing cabinet a bust of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. And immediately behind the bust, you'll see a quotation from a sermon called The Wailing of Risca that Sermon preached on December the 9th of 1860. A mining accident had just claimed the lives of dozens of miners, and Spurgeon seized that opportunity to alert his congregation to the great urgency of the gospel. We can't count on there being another opportunity, so we must share the gospel of Christ every time we have a chance. And this is what Spurgeon said. Referring to our text in Ezekiel, he said, But so live that when you hear the funeral knell, even for a neighbor, you may be able to say, Poor soul, whether he has gone to heaven or to hell, I know I am clear of his blood. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners be damned, then at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That's how we have to respond to Ezekiel's charge. So that when anyone we know dies, we can honestly say, I am innocent of their blood. What we must do is what the old hymn that many of us sang as children says, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep or the erring one, lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, we believe that the fields are still white to harvest. And we believe that you, as the Lord of the harvest, is still sending out laborers. And that when you did, you called our name. Father, help us to be faithful, to share the gospel with friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors, and yes, to carry the gospel even across the seas to those who have no opportunity at all to hear the good news apart from our obedience. Father, we pray that you'll forgive us for the blood that is on our hands, and we pray from this day forward that our hands will never be bloodied again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. 
You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.